0: Hello and welcome to A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist. This week, Pete and Frosty talk to Stuart Lyle about future urban combat. Don't forget, head to waveroom.com if you want to hear the other podcasts in this
1: series or check out our other content. Enjoy the podcast.
0: Stuart, would you like to introduce yourself? What's your role here at DSTL and how did you get to DSTL? I don't mean, how did you travel here this morning?
2: <laughs> yeah, hi, I'm Stuart Lyle. I'm a principal analyst in DSDL's Land Analysis Group, and my job is to work with the Army to conduct research and help them make decisions about the future of the Army. Most specifically, looking at what does it look like beyond five years' time. So I look, I tend to look more into sort of the 10-, 15-, 20 fifteen, twenty-year uh, time frame for the Army and help them plan for that. Awesome. And um, how did you end up working for DSDL? So I took a very roundabout way of getting here. So normally we get people. The majority of people come into DSTL direct from university. I had actually joined the military, first of all. I was a young officer in the Royal Marines, but I got an injury, so I got a medical discharge. I didn't have a degree, so I then went to university and then came to DSTL about 10 years ago. I I started out working very much sort of MOD main building focused, looking at this high level MOD policy realm. And then about six years ago, I started focusing much more on land forces and made the transition over to looking almost exclusively at
1: land operations. As a neck, therefore, advising the army, in, I think that's hilarious that, that on their 10 to 15 year plan, I take it there's a lot more boats and a, a lot fewer tanks. So we, we have had a boat. Um, so that, that has been one thing. So our, our amphibiosity.
2: So having vehicles be amphibious gives a lot of operational tactical mobility options for our land force and not just uh, for a littoral force or amphibious force. So... So, yeah, so that is one thing that we do raise a lot, actually, is fibrosity.
1: Yeah, it was made of a joke, but now, now obviously, I wait to see the riverine capability of the Royal Engineers increase massively. <laughs> it is all clicking together now, isn't it? It yeah,
0: is. I, I get it, yeah.
1: And we'll need to shower more as well,
0: I suppose. <laughs> <That's> probably <laughs> something key that comes out of it. So, what are you working on right now?
2: So, at the moment, I am working with some of our genius project teams. I sit over several teams, and I'm helping them to address a number of issues. We've got one team that's working with the... Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, uh, helping them sort of figure out urban operations at that core level. But principally, I'm working with the Army, Army Futures, Director of Futures, to think about the future of the Army and what that should look like in terms of platform structures, capabilities. So Project Wavell is one of the ones that is sort of taking up the majority of my time, um, but there's several other ones looking at sort of future concepts even beyond the Wavell timeframe.
0: And so something specific with that is, is looking at complex terrain? Right, complex terrain is the right term, is it not complex environments? Yes. And specifically the urban environment within that?
2: Yes, so the urban environment is my main subject area of expertise. So as I started working with the Army looking at the future of land warfare, I was looking at the operating environment quite a lot. And the more I was helping the Army trying to figure out the, the future operating environment, the more urban operations came up time and time again. And it's something that as Defence, we have been spending a lot of our time looking at our, in Defence's futures documents. If you look across DCDC DC or DSTL, a lot of them talking about the future operating environment says that urban operations are going to become more of a thing as the world becomes increasingly more urbanised. That wasn't necessarily being translated to the army's planning for the future, future force. Um, we were very much seeing a continuation of rural being the dominant uh, environment they were getting ready for. We're starting to see a shift with that now. So with Project Wave, the army is looking much more at being sort of focused on urban operations or complex terrain, operating from complex terrain. So we're now starting to see the the Army take urban operations much more seriously, which is obviously good because it marries up with what
1: our predictions have been. So what's the difference between urban and complex then? Is it, you know, because they're not the same thing, right? So complex terrain is the
2: umbrella term for any terrain which imposes constraints on on the forces operating within it. That could be mobility constraints or constraints in logistics or, or your ability to conduct ISR. Now, urban terrain is the most complex of complex terrains so if you can get yourself ready for operating in an urban environment and come to be operating in an urban environment then the inference is that you can actually be quite better prepared for other complex terrains
1: and lots of armies when they've historically looked at urban have looked at dismounted close combat right so it's been about you know the section it's been about house clearing it's about movement but you know there are a bunch of others that have come at this through a different lens, right? Based on their own experiences, primarily in the US, they talk about you know a lot more combined arms. They talk about you know artillery and armor in the urban. Is 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 the UK's concept of urban? Is DSTL's thinking that urban is around light, or is it around combined, or is it around you know? God, I hate this phrase multi multi domain. You know what is it that you know? Can you characterize it in some way or is it just it's, a, it's, a, it's an all, all players? So urban operations is a combined arms fight. That,
2: that, that, is, a, that is a fact. Uh, to be good at urban operations, you have to be good at combined arms operations. There is no way around that. One thing that we find is that the perception of urban operations is very much skewed towards an infantry fight, mostly because that's what we can actually do in terms of our physical training estates. It allows us to do a lot more with that than doing a larger scale mounted maneuver because of our uh, the constraints with the size of those estates another aspect of that is that our urban operations instructors course is run by the infantry battle school so it makes people think that it is although that is a all cap badge welcome course but it gives the impression that it's an infantry type fight now infantry are crucial to that combined armed capability in that urban space and we've seen this with the russians in ukraine one thing that they lacked was an awful lot of infantry and it's been pointed out by many other people that a lack of infantry capability meant that they were pushing armoured and mechanised forces into an urban space and then getting de- defeated by small dismounted anti-tank team. Um, so without that infantry, then all the other pieces are more vulnerable. You can't dominate the terrain. You can't manoeuvre through the terrain quite as well without infantry. So they are a critical component uh, of that combined arms piece. But infantry can't do it alone. So yes, it is definitely
1: a combined arms, a combined arms fight. So what are the other principles about complex terrain if if it's a combined arms fight there must be some other facets you know some key building blocks i mean i'm guessing training is one of them but what are the other ones that, that that there are
2: so obviously training is a critical component to it and we wouldn't we wouldn't say otherwise and actually that's one thing that we are good at is actually training at that lowest subunit level um, because that's where our training estates are geared towards Another aspect of it is mission command. We talk about it a lot in the British military about being able to empower junior leaders to make decisions and for an urban operation in particular where line of sight, lines of communication between junior commanders making decisions and higher echelon commanders uh, is very much disrupted. You haven't got that same picture of the battle space at even platoon or, or company level. So mission command is absolutely critical and this goes back, you can go all the way back to World War II and you can hear accounts of the same thing saying this was a corporal's fight, it wasn't an officer's fight. So that's something that, as the British Army, because we invest so much in our junior leaders training, that gives us that that benefit. But like I said, that's the foundation that you build on and you then put in all those combined arms pieces.
1: So what has the research of your teams on urban and urban in the future drawn out that differentiates it from what we've seen over our own history of operations the last 20 years, right? I mean, there was a fair amount of experience in Basra. There was a fair amount of experience from the Americans in Fallujah or Ramadi. We drew lessons from what we saw in Ukraine or Georgia or Syria, Libya. You know, there's, there's been lots of lessons. What, what does your research draw out about the future that makes it significantly different? Or is it just a sort of linear continuation of, of what we've seen?
2: So in terms of the way to conduct urban operations at the, the close combat level, there is nothing you... Under the sun that we've seen, a lot of it is just a reinforcement of the, uh, the original roles around combined arms operations, small unit sort of mission command and small unit decision makers, small unit leaders. So that was all still extant. It's then trying to figure out how do we then get big army to then fit into that mold. So there's a disconnect between when you go on an operation, you're conducting a combined arms company group level operation where you do combined arms teaming at sub unit level, at company level. And then when you look at high-level defence planning, where it's all about brigade structures and divisions. So those two are, until recently, quite disconnected. And what Project Wavel is trying to do within Directorate Futures in the Army is trying to fuse those two things together and figure out how do we leverage what we need to do at, to conduct urban operations at sub subunit level with what the Army likes to think about it. So brigade and divisional, how do you then brigade things together? How do you generate mass at that brigade and divisional capability?
1: So I think it's brilliant because... You know, for for a scientist to, to do you know to like you to go yeah we've been researching this for five years and actually we found that nothing has changed you know for me that's that's massively reassuring right that the, the ball principles stay the same and actually someone's going to stand up and say it's exactly the same right just do it a bit better and you know and you know build the right training areas and and you'll have it for me that's like massive but but i bet when it you know I'm guessing and you can't say this but you know when it went in front of a senior officer who's who has got this as his, as his you know little hobby horse that, that there was like there must be something new you know bring me something new it's actually brilliant that a scientist can I guess because DSTL's is independent enough that can say no, no no this you just need to get back and do do the basics right and then we need to fix a bigger issue that's organizational this is over the top that's that's massive right because there are there are few militaries i think that have this independent body that can go you don't need to change much you know that those basic tenants absolutely work you know them on it harder getting people doing better get everyone through the training pipeline and then we need to change something over the top that's that's a very different dynamic to you get in some other militaries right
2: yeah, and the, the independence of DSTL to be able to go into senior senior decision makers and being able to present them with stuff that might not necessarily be comfortable for them to hear um, is, is really critical, especially because, you know, despite my very limited military background, I do appreciate um, what it's like being in that hierarchical organization. So the, the independence of being a civilian, but still within the same team, uh, being in the MOD uh, is, is a really good benefit that the DSTL brings. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. But one of the things I will say about that that tug of war between all this stuff being you know old hat we knew we knew it already, but then not necessarily applying it, is because there's until recently there was always that, that tug of war between do you do combined arms teaming at the subunit level, which you need to do for all those contingent operations, you know, if you're gonna do peace support operations or counterinsurgency operations, you'll do that combined arms teaming at that subunit level but then if you want to then do large-scale maneuver warfare you need to be able to brigade capabilities at that higher formation level to be able to conduct that maneuver and deliver the massive effect that you need so that's where that that tug of war has always been so while the evidence is not necessarily new um, it's that what's stopped us being able to apply it in the past is people not wanting to specialize in one type of terrain or one type of operation and therefore at the expense of of conducting those higher formation manoeuvre type operations.
1: And how many training areas are there as well, right? I mean, you know, if if you want to do something at a brigade level in urban, I'm guessing there are very few places in the world where you can do it. And, you know, I just think about, you know, the UK's big effort, you know, tier three, as it's called, training, you know, which was the Safe Suria series of exercises in Oman. You know, there were, what, seven, eight years between each one of those where where we rolled it out. That certainly wasn't urban, right? Because the areas that you can use this for are big open pieces of desert or, you know, or, or you know, Germany before that, maybe Poland today. I can't imagine there are that many fully instrumented urban ranges where you can go and blow things up with a brigade-sized unit of, of, of kinetic, uh, a kinetic force supported by everything from air power to engineers. So I don't know of any
2: where you can do that. So there are some large training estates. Germany's built quite a large one. We've historically used the French one at Sendzube. On, on a number of occasions, all the physical training estates have that limitations. You talk about blowing things up; you can't go to Senzo and blow up a building. They get very angry if you try and do that. So, if so, it's it's how do we try and replicate some of those same training training outputs, but in a way that doesn't necessarily require huge investment in being able to build a structure and then be able to def- destroy the structure and then build it up again for the next generation? James, you've written some stuff about on on no, about, uh, on, on Low Love Training. yeah, and chutes. So doing tactical exercise without troops is, is, a, is a really good way of building up the connect, the, the cognitive training side, um, which you can then apply when you go to those physical training estates, and you can put into context some of the things. OK, well, actually, we wouldn't necessarily assault that building. We call in joint fires on it uh, rather than what we see on training, uh, training where people tend to devolve down
0: into a dismounted close combat fight. I mean, a- actually, we are constrained. If you think about it, by training a state full stop, it doesn't matter what environment you want to train in. We don't have anything that that you can train a whole brigade on at once. I mean, Salisbury Plain isn't really big enough to do manoeuvre across. And when we're winding down Battus, I mean, the place in Canada, not Armoured infantry, so I don't, they drive stuff around there, right? It's big prairies (laughs) and hills and stuff. They don't jump out of airplanes, so they're not that cool. I'll have to cut that bit out. Anyway, I, I think you should
1: keep it in. Yeah, but the training estate for me is one of the, is one of the biggest problems here and, it, and, you know, and everyone has it. I, I wonder where the businessman side of, of Ben Wallace is, right? So why isn't Defence Secretary building somewhere that you, could, that you could use for this very purpose and then rent it out at extortionate rates to other native militaries to go in and use? Because everyone at the moment wants a urban area instrumented range in which they can train and do a certain amount of fires within it, You know, it is it is the one and everyone says it who's in urban or, or this is the one thing we really need before we go in, no one's got one
2: So there is an argument that you don't necessarily need that large physical training estate and DSL is working with the army to try and actually think about how can we use synthetic environments to try and provide that because as we discussed the urban close combat fight is fought at the section platoon And at most company level, you don't really conduct urban manoeuvre above company level. So in many ways, you don't need your training estate to be anything above company group level anyway. So what you're training then at the battle group and brigade level is the cognitive side of being able to coordinate urban operations, which you could do through wargaming or simulated environments. So whether that be tabletop tabletop or simulated environments, you can do that through wargaming. And that's something that DSTL has an awful lot of capability in. We, we maintain the Defence Wargaming Centre. We've got whole teams of wargame designers, and we've got simulation specialists looking at things like, whether it be computer-based simulations or virtual reality, to try and leverage all the different technologies to see what can we leverage from a training side. But when you start talking about brigade-level urban operations, realistically, the most effective way to train that is training uh, in wargaming. In a war game, because you're you in a war game, you're able to employ things like your joint effects, some of those softer effect uh, capabilities, so non-kinetic effects, information operations, and things like that. That actually you would struggle to try and do in a physical training estate. Being able to do things like coordinating joint fires, you don't necessarily need to be on the physical terrain to train the processes for doing that. You can then transfer that into the physical training estate at a company level where you've got a JTAC or a forward observer attached to their company who is then going through the process of assessing the terrain. Things like cresting issues with artillery, whether or not the artillery run can get over the buildings, that sort of thing. They can do that in the physical training estate, but then the process of coordinating that at brigade level doesn't necessarily be, need to be done in a physical estate.
1: So I, th- I think it, this idea of, of simulation and, and wargaming, there's always a worry that it becomes too generic. Right, and, and actually the urban is very specific. I mean, you know, even in architecture terms or the age of a city and the infrastructure that exists under how many times have been invaded, how many times buildings have been knocked down, you know, do they use rebar as, a, as just a normal way of doing it? They're all very, very different. So the, the, the worry is in, in simulation that it all becomes a bit too generic.
2: So I would come to that and say that if you build a physical training estate, then that will be entirely generic because you're only going to do it once. So in many ways... By having a simulated environment you can offer people different different environments so if you look at things like vbs3 that the army uses at the moment you can put in multiple different environments cultural background stuff as well so you can you can change the full the full layout of the city you can be well, i think they have a quite a large area of baghdad already represented in it as well as sort of western european style cities and you can build a build your own map for your own scenario for your own exercise depending on what you want to do and of course
0: you know, if you take, a, you take a rifle company to cope build down, you're going to need ladders right? because you're going to be going through all of the windows. But if you're deployed, you probably want combat engineers to blow holes in walls and you're not going
1: to do that in our physical training state. Absolutely. Well, unless you use them to rebuild them afterwards as well. You know, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's this resettlement programme here for people leaving. They could rebuild the walls and then people can blow them up. I mean, I think it's a great plan. Yeah, true, true. You mentioned something that raised my eyebrow
0: earlier, difficult conversations with people. So yes. can you give us an example of something that you've had to have?
2: So there, there is actually one that is happening almost uh, as, as we speak. We've got Project Wavell and the Army's thinking about the future. We've talked about how the, in fact, Director of Future, Major General Barra, has, has gone out and talked about how we're going to be an Army that majors on urban operations. And that is a difficult conversation that people are having at the moment. And we've actually been at the forefront helping the Army that decision based on some work we've done previously looking at building urban, op- urban optimized forces for them and looking at what types of capabilities you have. Well, now, some people argue, and quite quite rightly, if you optimise for one environment, then you can almost bet house that the next war you fight will not be in that environment. And while that's a valid argument, one thing that we've been trying to help the army make the case for is that if you are urban optimised, that doesn't necessarily mean that every other man has a ladder. What it does mean is that there are certain capabilities you have that increase your capability at conducting that close fight where you're constrained by joint fires, or you have greater ISR to allow you to have better situational awareness at the point of contact, and all that, all those capabilities that we talk about are not necessarily specific to just being in an urban environment. They are quite useful in all environments in many
1: ways. So there's a, there's this thing about you know complex environments, urban environments, that that they involve a whole host of constituent functions whether it's you know land air, isr there's cyber there's you know, a bit of ai there's some space there's data science you know, there's a myriad of stuff including some of those civilian things that you really need like you know architecture people and and town planners who really understand about spaces and how trees blow up and you know the the, the effects of of shrapnel on on people the sort of medical part as well but all of that is sort of underpinned by this idea that it's taking place in a different physical geography which places different, a different emphasis on things like survivability and lethality. Does your team like do all those things? Does it do part of them? Does it draw on different experts in different parts of DSTL? How, do, how does your research team work? Do they, do they contain experts from all those areas or do you draw them in or, or are other parts of DSTL to which you, you sort of link into? So, yeah, so very good question.
2: DSTL is a massive organisation where we're about 4,500 people huge range of expertise and while my group is the, the land analysis group we're over 100 strong we certainly can't cover off within that all of the capabilities that you would need so we're very much a a sort of hub reaching out across the spokes of all the different areas so we have the different technology areas who look specifically at lethality or some that will look at specifically at survivability others will look at mobility aspects so these people are very much kind of looking at Okay, what is the art of the possible in different time frames? What does the technology say that you could do? And then what my group does is we take all that information, or my team, certainly, whenever we're doing concept development, we'll take all those different SME uh, inputs and fuse them together and try and look at the operationalizing of these different technologies. Because you might be able to do something technically, but then if that doesn't necessarily create a, an operational advantage, if that doesn't give you that, that, that capability edge that over a over, over capability you already have, then in many ways is is it is it worth the investment? Now those are the questions that sort of my team will ask. We'll sort of go, okay, well what's the what's theoretically possible by the technology? Put it into an operational context and see whether or not it's worth pursuing.
1: And and those are big questions, right? I mean, you know, those become, you know, investment appraisal decisions that are sort of like, okay, do we buy X or do we buy Y? Or how many of each do we buy? Mm-hmm. The evidence base for that that you then go back to. I mean, there's a there's a load of science and research and analysis and databases and stuff. But does that come down to a you know, a, a numerical metric? Does someone come up, there's, you know, X scores are four, Y scores are six, or is there a sort of bit of military judgment on the top? Or how does that, you know, how does that formulation of the, of the analysis happen? So that's a
2: very big question. <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot of steps in the, in the procurement process. So you do the initial aspect of looking at concept development. So very much kind of looking out at an epoch in time beyond what your current equipment plan is and seeing, okay, well, what's the operating environment going to be like? What's the threat environment going to be like? And what are the types of missions and tasks are you likely to be asked to do? That then starts to, what sort of falls out from that then is you start to set requirements for vehicle fleets at the macro level scale. And then a process then goes on from there where people then say, okay, we want to look at medium and meet capability versus heavy. We want to look at more expeditionary or so operational mobility is a big one. So therefore we want to look more at a wheeled platform than something else. So you start over a period of years to then set some of the requirements for what that next equipment plan might be. Um, and then once you start to then set a number of equipment uh, requirements together, you then start to then do a bit more, sort of a bit more in depth testing. So there's a constant process of requirement setting, testing, uh, looking at numbers, and all under this understanding that everything will change <laughs> in five, 10 years anyway. So it's a, it's a complex process that never seems to really end.
1: And do you? Do you and your team, do you stay engaged just at the start, providing that evidence base for, for, you know, for the investment appraisal? Or are you then, you know, apart from the sort of wargaming you know, challenge aspect, you know, are you engaged right the way through? Or do you stop at a certain level and go, listen, I've got 100 people, you're asking me to solve all of the Army's problems, I'm just focusing on this. Or do you get pulled into everything right the way down as well? So we're involved in all the steps. So whether it's not just our group, but the people
2: involved in survivability and lethality, They're involved throughout the whole process. They'll be involved through the whole process all the way through to down selection of what the eventual capability is going to be. So say, for instance, we've made a decision on Boxer, but before Boxer, there were several vehicles that we could have chosen. So we would have been involved at various stages of being able to then test each of those different models to see which one was better from an operational perspective. And then some people will then test them which one's better from a lethality or survivability perspective. So we're involved in all of those processes the whole way through. Then once a vehicle comes into service, then we'll also look at things like, okay, well, how many of them do we need in five years' time, in 10 years' time? If we then take that same capability and then we want to increase this lethality, what would be the implications if we were then to put a different weapon system on there? Or if we were to mix that particular vehicle with, uh, into a fleet with another lot of vehicles, so the, the old tracks and wheels debate comes up quite a lot. So you know that that's something that we can get very, we get very much involved in as well. I mean
0: that is difficult conversation. it? Right is. there, isn't
2: that's it? a that's yeah. a difficult conversation. Yeah,
0: but we'll stray <laughs> away from that because I think we'll just upset people. I think if we get into that.
2: Yeah. So the point is that DSL is involved in the right from the very beginning, from concept setting, all the way through requirement setting, procurement decisions, and then even post procurement, we're involved with it, with it after that as well.
1: And then going out and assessing as well. You know, again, I was just, you know, really on the reading on the you know some of the boards, some of the material. The number of people from DSTL who go out on ops, mm-hmm. you know, not just to do operational analysis, which is always a big thing, right? Someone pitches up and three div headquarters needs an OA cell to, you know, to run through course of action analysis, blah, blah. blah. So you, you always get DSTL people there. But DSTL people on the ground who are looking at the performance of Kit that are that are refining not just what the concepts mean, but how they could be improved. There's a lot of that interaction with actual soldiers and operations on the ground, isn't there? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And the interaction with the military is is across the boards. We have military advisors embedded within DSTL. So a project will be assigned a military advisor. So every project within DSTL gets assigned a military advisor. And that is there to try it. They're there to bring that specialist knowledge of things like processes and where does something fit within a head, within a particular unit or whose responsibility would that be to then take it forward to procurement? Those sorts of questions that aren't necessarily sort of the deep technical technology engineering or wargaming perspective, but trying to think more about, okay, well, actually, how does this fit into a, an army structure or an army's way of doing things? That's what we have the, the military advisors for.
1: And how important are those guys in your team, those, those people within your team?
2: Yeah, hugely important. So they, they are a critical part. That's why every project is assigned a military advisor. So they provide sense checking something might sound fantastic from a technology perspective, it might sound really good in a workshop. And then somebody from the military comes in and say, give you 10 different reasons why it's a really bad idea. So, so yeah, they, they really do sort of sense check things. Uh, and they're also a really good hub for us being able to reach into other aspects of the army. Now they, you know, they know themselves, they can't cover off the entirety of the British military in the small number of posts that we do have. So really they're a conduit for us to be able to reach into other parts of the army and being able to leverage that expertise elsewhere.
1: But they're embedded in your team, right? So so these are the people that sit there alongside you all the time, looking at all sorts of stuff in terms of complex terrain, in terms of, you know, between the now the deployability, the operationalization, you know, all through this phasing. That, That is a phenomenal experience. We tend to put people where their
2: expertise are. They then get to see what the real sort of evidence is for you know sort of how things perform not just what they read in the uh, in the tactical aid memoir they get to read the full tactical data they then get to see what's the future procurement likely to be what are the constraints and what are the other things that might be influencing decisions about say a new artillery piece or a new armored vehicle so rather than just thinking about the armored fighting vehicle or how you conduct you know sort of a tank squadron's maneuver you're now thinking about that full combined arms piece and then we tend to lean on them quite heavily for wargaming as well. And they get to be a lot of the players in our wargames. So they get that full exposure to the combined arms piece at all echelons as well. So we'll suddenly have somebody who's about to take over a company. It will be then be playing as a brigade level commander. And we'll understand the complexities of brigade level operations. And they can then
0: take that on with them in the rest of their career. And I mean, an interesting post, I think. Absolutely. Picking the right
1: people as being that is important. Where we but, take a special person to, to, to <laughs> pick the right kind of person for that, right? Unfortunately, they don't have
0: one. I'd like to zero in on something you mentioned earlier, the, the urban optimised force. Is that right? Is that mm-hmm. the, the title yep. of it?
2: Can we talk about that? Yeah, so, so the, we've had two years worth of an effort on that particular. We, the first year focused on dismounted light roll forces. We looked at the section of platoon level and we designed an urban optimised platoon structure and we also looked at lethality as well those are the two areas structures and lethality that people hadn't really looked at over the last 10 20 years and actually even before that the last time we changed the section structure section between structure was after the Falklands War so we've had quite a significant change in technology without necessarily changing structures and then when it comes to things like lethality an awful lot of our lethality um, systems haven't necessarily changed either since 1986 when the SA80 came in So it was something that hadn't really been looked at properly sort of over the years, so what we ended up focusing on, we looked at an urban optimized force because it was trying to see about, okay, can we do things differently? And if we do do, if we do decide to have an urban optimized force, what might it look like and see what, what bits of that then were critical to being an urban optimized force that we could then take and apply elsewhere. So we looked at the section of platoon. We came up with some alternative structures. So it was a a 10-person section, an independent command element, which is very much kind of a U.S. model of having an independent squad leader. We then also, we we shamelessly stole the U.S. Marine Corps concept for the squad systems operator. So we created a section systems operator. So the idea being that if we are, we keep giving more capability and more technology into the section, but we don't necessarily resource it with personnel. So the assumption is, is that somebody was sitting around didn't have anything to do before, but in reality, they do all have jobs to do. So therefore, they have to make decisions about, do I use this piece of technology or do I focus on my primary job? So if you resource that with a systems operator, someone whose dedicated, who's dedicated role is to then operate these things, then it means that your section, your fire teams, can then carry on with their missions and tasks uh, without necessarily being drawn away um, to
0: operate technology. What, so, what sort of technology are we talking for the systems operator?
2: So the two primary ones are ISR. So we can Black It was a cl- classic one we gave to the, to the sections. But if you don't then resource that with an individual, then the choice is do I use it or not? And if you're in the assault, then the chances are, or if you're in the assault or the defense, chances are you're going to be then operating a weapon system, not necessarily operating the drone, which means you lose that ISR and that situational awareness from that. The other one is dismounted situational awareness kits, so the old sort of combat computer that you see people with on the chest. So again, for somebody to actually use that, they have to then take their head down from the situation in order to, to look at the screen. So you then end up with section commanders not necessarily being aware of what's happening in the immediate because they're focused on the screen in front of them. So if you have a systems operator who can effectively do that sort of wider area of situational awareness, and then the section commander can then focus on fighting the fire teams giving them tasks and it's effectively replicating that j35 function but down at that section level so you're maintaining the situational awareness but you're also allowing the section commander to focus on where do they send their fire teams without necessarily getting drawn into the minutiae of actually being part of those clearance teams so so those are those are two big two big pieces of technology that we give the systems operator and so that way you can leverage those technologies to best effect and if they're there with the drone able to spot enemy uh, targets then they're in the right position then to update the dsa system and being able to feed that up to higher echelon saying we've located the enemy at this location so that was uh, the section level at uh, the platoon level we also then uh, did things we have systems operators at platoon level we also took away all the shoulder launch systems from the sections and we consolidated them into a two-person shoulder launch rocket team uh, whatever you want to call it at platoon level And with the idea being is that when you're in complex terrain, the sections themselves are more focused on actually sort of maneuvering through that terrain and engaging the enemy, and are less likely to be running around with a large anti-tank weapon on their shoulder. So therefore, having a a small team that is a subject matter expert on that system, being able to independently maneuver as a platoon asset, uh, we actually find to be really useful, uh, and a much better use of that type of system than sort of handing them out across the sections. So. So that was one thing we did. We, so we came up with the, the, the ideas, the concepts. We then went around various uh, experts across defence. So we went to Commander Training Centre, Royal Marines, spoke to the um, CQB instructors there. We went to the infantry battle school, talked to the Urban Ops Wing there, 16 Brigade, and a few others. And we spoke to all their, their urban leads and got their input into it as well. So it wasn't this, this wasn't just a, a DSDL came up with this great idea. So the army got their say on what the concept looked like. We then took it from there and then did the testing of that. So, we too, we put it through our most, uh, our highest fidelity urban combat model and was actually able to test the, uh, test the full spectrum. So, the lethality options, and the ability to call an indirect fire as well in support of the platoon level actions um, and see what the trade offs of that were. So, we were able to test that and it was, uh, it was, it was actually quite striking. So, we, we baselined it with a current UK platoon, put it against a notional enemy force and, and that was supposed to be testing and it proved to be quite testing. In that the current structure didn't necessarily fare very well at all, but as we started to over over time layer in some of the new concepts, eventually by the end, and we put in all the concepts, then Blue was achieving all of its missions and mission objectives. So there was some pretty stark evidence that actually it was it, it has some utility. So that then went to the Army, and it's up to them to make that, those decisions. But then there are wider things that influence those decisions. So we haven't seen it yet. But there's no reason why we might not see some elements of it falling out. And I next. just think
0: yeah, any, any platoon or company commander who's listening to that will recognize the elements that you talked about there. If they've done training in the urban environment, they've almost certainly reorganized their fighting force to, to, to match that in some way. Yeah, they'll have moved their you know, they won't have a rocket team. that sounds like such a cool name. But they'll have moved all of their end law into into a section in their team or they'll have grouped all of their machine guns, you know, their, their big machine guns and their little machine guns together because the guys fighting through don't want to be burdened with those and they'll put them
1: somewhere you know, useful later. What does a good lethality mix look like in the next force, the ones that the, you know, you've know you been instrumental in designing? What does the next lethality mix look like at the section, platoon, company level? Is it very different from what we've got today?
2: So I'll say yes. And part of the reason for that is that when you're in complex terrain, you are constrained in your ability to leverage joint fires. And that's something that you know, very much in sort of the way that the British Army likes to conduct operations is employing joint fires at distance. But when you're in complex terrain, often the fight is much closer. And so not only are you in close proximity to the to the enemy, average, in, average engagement distance for dismounts is less than 50 metres. So you're well within danger close for all of your artillery assets. But also we talk about complex terrain, we talk about the, the degradation of comms. By the urban environment. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. So by relying on joint fires for making up any, any discrepancy in your, in your dismounted lethality, you're putting yourself in a position where you might not even be able to call on those fires, because even if you can reach th- back through that contested environment to, to call for fires, the fires might not be able to deliver the effect that you need. So a lot of the, the systems were very much about increasing dismounted close combat lethality. So the, the dismounted units, the, the, the infantry forces in that close fight can actually engage the majority of threats in front of them and therefore are less reliant on being able to call back for fires.
1: And what about the, you know you mentioned survivability in there as well. I mean, you know, if we're talking about a lot of this being conducted without the benefit of joint fires, the survivability without those joint fires being overlaid on you is quite critical to those at the forward edge of the battle or, or indeed anywhere within range of the adversary. What does survivability and protection look like then in the future from your analysis?
2: So you've got the, the survivability onion, you know, it talks about you know, sort of not being detected, not being, not being engaged. So there's an element in there as well of being able to defeat the enemy before they can engage you. So if you can defeat that enemy before they can engage you, or you can win that firefight, then without having to rely on your joint fires, then you're removing that complexity of that fight being able to reach back being able to coordinate those fires being able to then deliver those fires and you've got things like airspace management to con- to concern yourself with as well in order to be able to do that so so in many ways by increasing the lethality at the point of contact then you are increasing survivability while also reducing complexity of the fight as well so it's not saying that joint fires can't play a role it's just that if you can fight a fight without having to rely on joint fires then you're reducing a lot of the things that the friction and the complexity that you that you otherwise would expect
1: and the survivability point does the force look different in survivability term? is there is there a new system we've had defensive aid suites for aircraft for ages right Is there something in the future that says that we're going to have a force field around you know uh, deployed forces in the future be it at the section you know a, a group a larger level is there something That we're looking at that says this is this is what's gonna be there, or are we relying on good ISR and the ability to move out of the way?
2: So good ISR is always a good thing. And actually, you know, we we always need more of it. So that 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 is again part of that survivability. And if you can find the enemy first, you then aren't in a position to be observed and engaged. So so yeah, absolutely that is there. Force fields, they're still a way away. Active protection systems, the UK is gonna be be procuring some active protection systems for Challenger Three. So, yeah, we're working with the army, looking at what are the options for that and where does, it, where does it best fit. So while we've got it for Challenger 3, it's then also looking beyond that and trying to look at, okay, where else in the force might we need? Anti-tank weapons don't all just get directed at tanks. So we're trying to look at uh, wider than that and saying what, what platforms do actually require active protection
0: systems. Dismounted action. Active so for dismounted
2: action, so one of the concepts that has come up is can we have a deployable active protection system for buildings? So one of the things that has come up in recent years, we've seen much more prevalent, is thermobaric weapon systems, so shoulder-launched thermobarics. So if you're trying to defend a building and somebody is able to fire a thermobaric shoulder-launched system at you, is there something that you can do where you can actually deploy tripod-mounted active protection systems around a building? So that's something that we've examined. I can't necessarily go into the details of, you know, sort of what the decisions were, but but that is something that people have talked about. Uh, but no force fields for individual soldiers. No, I think it's 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 down to best, better use of terrain, being able to fire back uh, and win that firefight, uh, seeing the enemy before they see you. Uh, those things all still work.
1: So it it was really reassuring when you said that you, t- you talked about you know, complex terrain, and then there's this reality to some <laughs> of the assumptions about EM, about reach back, about the complexities of airspace management or battle space management, about the reality of fires not necessarily being able to reach you or achieve its effects. There's something reassuring about, about, you know, not the perfect world assumptions that you sometimes think about when people are developing systems, you know. Well, we've got, we, we will have you know, air superiority, therefore you don't need artillery. You know, this sort of thing which sort of you know, plays into some of the discourse at the low levels. Is, is, it's reassuring to see that's not mapped out here, that actually you're going, yeah, well, it's, it's just not going to be available. Or, you're not going to have GPS or some of those things is in there. But given all of that, are there some big things that worry you in this sphere are there are there some you know things that almost keep you up at night where you go we really haven't got this sorted i, I need to answer this research question this one is important somehow we need to get at this
2: so counter uas capabilities is one that we are working on but it's definitely something that is going to be quite prevalent especially in in, in urban environments you can dominate the airspace above a city but you can still fly drone relatively i know there's, there's caveats about line of sight and it comes on the nature of it but there are the ability to be spotted on the battle space. You can exploit the urban terrain to try and mask your movement. But if the enemy is able to, to operate SR drones in sufficient quantities, then the likelihood is that you will get spotted. And we've seen this. You can see this in the footage that's coming out of Ukraine. So, so that is definitely something, being able to defeat that threat. Um, there's also the, the ability for these things, uh, these um, UAS, to be able to drop kinetic effectors as well, which is quite a challenge. For the dismounts uh, to try and deal with, so can you defeat UAS outreach? Then that's that's definitely something that, that is uh, quite quite worrying. But like I say, we're, we are working on it, so it's it's a known problem. So it's and it's not a new one. This isn't something that we've only just noticed with with, you, with Ukraine. So so no, it's 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 in the works.
1: And and there are some there are some interesting parts about that. I mean, this this drone counter drone battle has been happening in Libya for like four or five years. Nagora Karabach was really about how drones are really hampered by weather, you know, and, and the, you know, the city of Shusha, the Battle of Shusha is, 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 is really informative about, you know, the effectiveness and restrictions of drones in that stuff. And I think that's where it comes back to your simulation, the ability to throw in bad weather and, you know, snow instead of fog. I think this, must be a, this must give you a really rich picture about the potential future scenarios, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So... Drones and counter drones isn't necessarily one of my main expertise, so I don't necessarily want to go. So I've actually got another alternative on, if if you don't mind. Go for it. So yeah, so one of the things that does concern me the most would be thermobarics and the proliferation of thermobaric weapon systems that we've seen throughout the world. So we've all seen TOS one, the larger sort of 300 millimeter rocket variant, but also dismounted ones. So things like the RPOA, there's thermobaric rounds for the RPG launcher as well. So these are quite prolific systems we've seen them beyond nation states irregular adversaries have been using them but their ability to deliver quite a devastating effect into a building is something that does concern me because um, there's a lot lot of the the dismounted fight uh, where you are still vulnerable to a weapon system being fired at the building that you're occupying so being able to protect against thermobarracks or uh, prevent the adversary being able to employ thermobarracks is definitely something that uh, for those who don't who don't
0: don't have a, a deep understanding of how thermobarics work. What specifically is it about them that is worrying for someone fighting in the urban environment?
2: So thermobaric weapons are specifically designed to enhance the blast within a confined space. So they are bunker busters. The idea is that when they, when they ignite, they send out a cloud of flammable particles into the, into the space. As it's a, an aerosol capability, it goes into all the nooks and crannies of a building so there's no sort of escaping from it and then a microsecond later it ignites and you get this very large overpressure effect and um, so it breaks structures open collapses buildings and if you're outside the immediate blast zone you can have some quite devastating sort of injuries to the actual individuals themselves so even if you're not killed by the blast you could be killed by some of the sort of wider effects that it causes so they're very very devastating if fired into a confined space. So the idea of going into a dismounted close fight where somebody's able to launch one of these things at a building that you're occupying is, is concerning.
0: But what is the urban area that we are not currently training in that we should be?
2: Yeah, so, so the, the main one is, and it's an area that we don't really have enough understanding of from a defence perspective of what is it like to operate in that type of environment. Slums, it's a term recognised by the United Nations, so... While we view it as a disparaging term, in many ways it's the, it's the official term for it, but there's lots of different names for it. UK doctrine mentions slums or shanty towns twice, without much expansion on what, what the implications are. So, but in reality, when you look around the world, slums are the dominant urban terrain zone. Slums are the homes for a third of the global urban population. So that's, that's today. So by 2030, it's likely to be 40% and um, by 20, 2050, it's likely to be 50% of the world's urban population live in slums. So this is, this is not something we can necessarily ignore. Um, I don't think it's something that uh, we give enough thought to in terms of our doctrine and what it's like to operate in them. People make the assumption that it's all about thin, uh, sort of very um, low-level, le- low sprawling, thin-skinned buildings, very irregular, uh, when in reality there's an awful lot of complexity when you look around the world, the types of slums. Sometimes you can get high-rise buildings in slums, that are occupied by very wealthy people. So they are a much more complex urban terrain zone than what our doctrine gives them credit for. So we, we looked at this. DSL did a, a study looking at the future of cities. That was one aspect of it, uh, with the hope that what we would then do from that is take um, a much deeper dive into certain areas. And slums was going to be one of the ones that was recommended. Now, that hasn't necessarily happened, uh, unfortunately, but it's something that I think we do need to have more research on to find out. Okay, what are the different typologies of slums? Um, what are the different characteristics between regions? And uh, what are the implications for military operations if you have to go into them? There's some really interesting ones out there. We're starting to see floating slums around the world. You know, so how do you manoeuvre a land force through an entire city that is accessed purely by canoe? So they're going back to the boats and amphibiosity earlier on. So you know, how, But how do we even access that area, let alone be able to operate in it? So there's, there, there's a lot of complexity to something that we've effectively just hand-waved away with just slums and shanties
1: and how do you differentiate within that not just for the the architecture and and the infrastructure but the sort of the culture the the human element that sits within them some of which are going to be you know widely accepting of a you know military president that goes in others are going to be you know from outright hostile to something you know you know that that faces you with a kinetic assault you know, the minute you arrive. How do you represent those across the space as well? Do you, do you have to be differentiated with all of those? Because you can end up with just a, you know, a, a, just a mass of many too, almost too many scenarios to, to actually cognitively deal with, right?
2: So i said the human aspect of slums is almost no different from the human aspect of wider cities themselves. So you'll see that same mix of complexity of the humans are in across all the urban terrain zones you get it condensed much more within a slum some slums can be vertical as well so then you get the differences between the floors of a building um, will be cultural breakpoints. and so you get there's an awful lot of complexity but it's it, but it's effectively a microcosm of of what could be sort of the wider human element of a city alternative forms of government these these settlements are generally there because the local government isn't necessarily providing capability the the infrastructure for them the governance for them so you tend to find that these are sites of alternative forms of government but you can get alternative forms of government in some places that aren't slums so they are a condensing of the wider complexity of urban operations but they're in urban terrain zones which are very ill-defined from a military perspective and understanding okay what are the challenges of being able to operate in them but even things like you know, so your weapon effects, depending on different types of buildings, you know, that's something that we def- definitely don't know uh, enough about in terms of the different types of building construction types in different slum areas. So, so, yeah, there's a lot of things that we don't know. But in terms of the human terrain aspects, it's more of a condensing of the wider complexity of human terrain that we're quite familiar with, although it is still a challenge. I mean, you've got this amazing
1: span, right, of... of responsibility and research with your with your teams of people looking at these projects how do you recruit for those teams is it is it like a is it like an internal process you go external do people have to be you know former soldiers or engineers or you know where where do you go to get your expertise you know to recruit into your your specialist team
2: so i'm thankfully not i'm not responsible for recruitment because it, it is a challenge but one thing is that there's no single model for getting into DSTL. There's, there's certainly no single model for getting into the land analysis group. We've got people of all academic backgrounds, from undergraduate degrees to PhDs. Subject is new no, is no barrier. One of our um, chief historical analysts has a PhD in how flies, the, the common house fly, flies. So the breadth of, uh, of academic backgrounds is, is almost, um, you yeah, know, it, it's, it's vast. But it's more about how people apply themselves to the subject matter. We do recruit people directly from university, but we also recruit people who are former military. We also recruit people from externally who will do a lateral move in and come into DSTL at one of the other levels rather than the the graduate level. So people do come in with different different levels of experience. So while I was very short military background, I was very much kind of, I came in as a graduate. So, but yeah, we get people coming in sort of the, the... the level above or two levels above as direct entries as well it's all about how well you know how do you think of a problem and how would you approach analyzing that problem um so yeah it's not all about subject matter
1: i, I think it's, a, it's an amazing mix of people one of those things that has always struck me is it's a really diverse group of people the only place that's like it for me is is a bit like gchq right because you get a really diverse group of people many of whom are are deep experts in their own individual areas and then and then someone has to pull these people together and and, and mix them up into a working team that generates something of utility do you have a problem hanging on to people is you know you know one of the other team we're speaking to before was saying you know it's there is there's a lot of requirement for there's a lot of competition for people right now both at the mid-level move, at the senior move, at the you know, more junior, people can pick and choose the jobs around at the moment. Is it, is it really hard to retain people? Do you think, is it going to get easier to retain people? Is it, do you end up with a certain type of people in, the, in your group? So I'd say it's,
2: it, it depends. The, the hardest challenge for us in, in land is retaining some of our junior analysts. So it takes time to learn the complexities of combined arms, manoeuvre warfare, or operations specific to a certain or terrain type or, or, you know, learning the, the in-depth knowledge of, you know, military bridging or artillery and that sort of thing. So it's, so it does take time to develop those subject matter experts. And so we find that a lot of our, some of our junior analysts will then, once they've been with us for a couple of years, they also see opportunities across defense. So they'll go and seek out opportunities, work in defense intelligence or in mod main building. As well, so there's lots of exciting jobs that are out there in defence as well. So, so sometimes the challenge for us is keeping somebody long enough that we can then teach them all of the intricacies of land warfare in order to then make them good project leads in sort of three, four, five years time. So yeah, so that's that's the challenging bit. That we find. So what keeps you here? I'm a geek. I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm a real I'm just a real nerd for my subject. So. So yeah, so and yeah, there's uh, there's nowhere else that I would get to spend my time just focusing on urban operations and future land warfare. So yeah, the, that's what keeps me here. So yeah, and and the people that I work with, I mean, the the teams that we have are are fantastic. So yeah, really enjoy the teams that I work uh, that I work with. I really enjoy the work that we do. And yeah, there's nowhere else where I get to do this and talk about this stuff all the time.
1: Brilliant. Oh. Yeah, thanks very much. That's a really really fascinating chat. And again reassuring that, that that you've got a you know a professional team of people that are looking at this that're providing the not only the science the data and the, the reality behind it but that that are allowed to indeed encourage to speak the truth to power to, to you know to to challenge people who want to debunk assumptions that that actually are still valid and to look for the some of the difficult realities of the future have the difficult conversations but also then can can iterate that into what the future might look like. It's it's been been remarkably reassuring to have that kind of touch point and know that that it exists in such a strong form in DSTL.
2: Thanks for listening to A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist. We hope you enjoyed it. Please do like and subscribe so you get the next podcast as soon as it's ready.
1: See you next week.